you don't want to read the nursing notes in the department. Just be prepared to read them from the stand in court. What they have to realize is that that kind of behavior went out with red meat. Being found dead is never a good prognostic sign. Hello, good morning, welcome. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, and our guest this morning, Dr. Michael Weinstock. Congratulations to the two of you. You are about to release the 18th version of Bounce Backs, I understand. Yes. Well, it's not quite 18, Rick. I, I think it's three. But the unique part of this one, and I'll let Mike comment on it, is it's all pediatric cases. Now, as you know, a lot of emergency medicine is based on fear psychology. Fear we can't get the tube in. Fear we, you know, we can't uh, do this and that and other thing. And peds is certainly an area of concern. Because also all those little creatures, you know, that can't talk to you, uh, they really do strike uh, fear in your heart when when you hear that they're back again in the emergency department. Well, this is a powerful book because a lot of these cases came from the actual providers that cared for the patients. So in addition to the medical part of things, on some of the cases, they talk about how they felt when those patients came back. And it speaks to a lot of stuff that, Greg, you and I have spoken about in the past that boy, this really, really impacts us as people when you care for a child, even if you did the right thing, and then they had a bad outcome. Absolutely. Uh, You know, bad outcomes, no matter what we do, we tend to be the kind of people who take it on ourselves. I mean, you know, I'm still blaming myself for the Sacco and Vanzetti killings. I I mean, (laughs) we we all tend to, to... take on this on our shoulders. But I think uh, people will find that the Bounce Backs 3, the pediatric uh, cases, are fun to work through, particularly with residents, because you can't keep everybody. Some people get sent home. In fact, in kids, I bet that number is 95 or 99 percent get sent home. And to to pick up little things here and there, uh, it's worth it. I think it's worth your time. Um, you have two other authors on this book. Yeah, Kevin uh, Clower wrote an... I reviewed this book, by the way. And uh, Kevin wrote, a, um, as usual, a very detailed and lucid section on the medical legal aspects. And you have a fourth author, a pediatrician from Florida. Uh, tell us a little bit about her, Mike. Sure, this is Madeline Joseph, and she is a pediatric emergency medicine physician. And... It was invaluable having her as part of it. I mean, she, in addition to reviewing all the chapters and coming up with some really additional extra insightful points, she only cares for children. So the book speaks, I think, not only to people who take care exclusively of children, but what's more scary in a community hospital that doesn't care for that many children to have a crashing child come in. So it's, I think, going to be something that when you read this thing, you see how this thing can, th- these patients can present to you commonly. So well, the, the other thing is, um, this is a, she's from a pediatric emergency department. What they do is kids. Um, and they still have mistakes. And a lot of the kids who come in still look like they're normal when they're walking through the door. I think this is, uh, this is difficult, and, and we need to understand the sort of the veterinary medicine aspects of this, that we have to uh, separate out the child from the owners here, the parents, 
and uh, honestly look at the kids. And sometimes that's hard work. Well, let's get a little blatant about this. Uh, Michael, how do they uh, get a hold of your book? we got like 35,000 emergency physicians in the country who they need to start ordering immediately. So how do they do that? Easiest way, just Amazon.com. I've heard of it. I've heard of it. Yeah, it's yeah. a little bookstore, a corner bookstore, corner of the world. <laughs> hey, listen, you put this issue together. Uh, we, we have um, three cases, I think, that you want to go through. And I think that we probably ought to get started. So you want to run with this ball? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And it's always a, a, an honor and a, and a fun time to, to be be talking with you guys about things. The overall theme for today, there's three different cases, but the overall theme is really going to deal with foreseeability. And it's a, a legal term, and it's anticipation of potentially bad outcome, either based on the therapy that we do or lack of timeliness with care. And the three cases will sort of meld together with that. They're a little bit different. I'm just going to give a brief overview. The first one is a child who died. Um, and I won't tell you exactly what it died from, but we'll go through a little bit of the presentation of that child. The second one is patient with alcohol intoxication, and we have a pretty conventional wisdom on that. However, there's a lot of subtlety to it, and I think there's subtlety to whether you even should check an alcohol level because in some way that ties your hands. And then the last case is a case from the new pediatric bounce back book, and it also deals with that foreseeability as far as potentially bad outcome and how far we go with informing the caregiver of what might happen and then what they need to do if, that, if those other symptoms occur. So let's start with the first one. And um, what I'm going to do is just briefly define foreseeability. And these are, are from the legal terms. And then we'll talk specifically about the case. So foreseeability, they'd say, that it's relevant to determination of whether a physician has exercised reasonable care and understanding or determining the existence of a risk of harm associated with a particular course of treatment. And uh, this appeals decision um, is what actually came from. That's where we're getting some of the information on that. But they say it's an important part of all negligent claims, the foreseeability, because the existence of a duty depends on the foreseeability of the injury. So I'm not going to go into it. Mike, help me out here. Yes. Use the term reasonable foreseeability because that's that's spread throughout all of these decisions. I mean, we can all sit here and say, well, I can foresee that this kid who looks perfectly normal, has normal vital signs, has a normal pulse rate, has a normal temperature, he could, he could die of meningitis. But you know what? That's not reasonably foreseeable from the examination I just gave you. So I, I want to emphasize here that the term is really longer than foreseeability. It's reasonable foreseeability. Well, that's exactly right. And the funny part, Greg, is when I was at the Ohio State University as a medical student. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> they, they, they always told us, well, if you think about PE, then you should work it up. And I've always disagreed with that. And I thought it was crazy at the time because I think you should always be thinking about something like PE. Now, you can usually exclude that within several seconds of talking to the patient, but those bad things, that foreseeability always needs to be on your differential. So you're exactly right. Reasonable foreseeability is what it's about. And they actually say later in here that foreseeability is a part of every evaluation. So just in and of the sake that something bad might happen, that's present in all emergency department cases. So that is not enough quite to, to pass the bar on that one. Correct. So this case, and I will go through it, is a five-year-old child, 
and he came in on January 14, 2007, and he had been treated for an ear infection. He presented to triage at 10.44 in the evening, and the triage nurse did notice that he was pale, had a tender abdomen and an elevated heart rate, but no fever. They took him back to a room, and this part I think is interesting too. When you're looking back on these cases, how do you determine what actually happened? And they put this in the appeals decision that it's been very difficult to figure out the actual events because several things happened. One, a different patient's documentation got placed on this record. Second of all, because of the acuity of the situation, the providers actually didn't put the documentation in real time. And so because of these sort of things, they don't really have all the information to work with. So a lot of this is disputed, and this information comes from what people recollect. And as we all know, that is not a great way to get great medical information. But at any rate, he initially got assigned to exam room 18. He was in that room for about 30 minutes, and then was evaluated by the physician. They ordered an IV. Unfortunately, the wrong fluid got administered to the patient. Again, question whether that really caused any harm. But... Undis- Mike, you're presenting this as a Keystone Cops case. Wrong I, I documentation. <laughs> There's the wrong fluid. I mean, maybe none of this made any difference, but you know what? This kind of discussion does not set a happy mood of, for jurors looking at a case. Well, you know, that's the thing. And, and when you think about the documentation that you make on the chart, boy, you know, I have felt very strongly that when I have a crashing patient, because, you know, it's not like you have 10 of these patients at the same time every shift that you work, that you should document extemporaneously what's going on. You know, I document my, you know, put my orders in after I see the patient, put my orders in, history of physical, and then I'll make a medical decision-making note and then put a timestamp on it right after I first see that patient and through the course of things. I think it's really important if something bad happens later so you can see what happened and when it happened. Although doing um, contemporaneous charting, I think, can be a real challenge. Um, I guess if you pull out the bad ones, that would that would probably uh, limit the the amount of work this is. But in terms of getting onto electronic medical record, uh, its proximity to the patient, and the timestamps are always going to be when you documented, not when you did it. And so there's always going to be this potential, this gap, and this gap's going to be variable as you go through the medical record. Yeah, but it's yeah, also explainable. Because when it says I documented at uh, 1010, and they say, well, doctor, the nurse's note says here you actually stuck that IV line in at 955. That's exactly right. That's when I stuck it in. When I made my note, uh, the time of that is, is uh, very clear. Well, I only bring all this point up about the documentation on the wrong chart and the lack of times as just a point that if you're able to do that, and we do ours with a voice-activated dictation, so for me to put a note on a chart is very easy. I just click the plus key, it turns on Dragon Naturally Speaking, and in it goes into the chart, I hit another button, it date and timestamps it. So it's pretty easy to do that. And I think we can anticipate some of the cases that, boy, you can tell something bad is gonna happen. And when I tell you a little bit more about this case, you're gonna see how fast things went south on this patient. So the patient initially came in at 1044, about half an hour later was seen by the physician, and then the patient was moved to a different room because they were recognized as being very, very acute. They had fluids, the patient had hypotension, got administered epinephrine, and then that epidrip was actually titrated up pretty quickly. Shortly after midnight, so really only a little after, a little more than an hour after the patient got there, he 
was recognized as being in really bad shape. They made arrangements to admit him to the PICU. They diagnosed that the patient was in sepsis, and they sent him upstairs at 11, and they sent him upstairs at 1.14 a.m. So that would be two and a half hours after he arrived in the emergency department, he was already up in the PICU. When he got there, things went bad very quickly. He developed hypoxemia, he had a central line placed, and then he was intubated. And unfortunately, um, shortly after that, uh, the patient coded. This is at 3.45 in the morning. So two and a half hours after he got to the PICU, and really only five hours after he got to the emergency department. They did CPR, they attempted for 20 minutes, and then they called the code and the patient was pronounced dead. I guess the issue here is, and uh, and now you can tell us the rest of the story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The rest of the story is that they did find, the plaintiff found a medical expert who, and this will come out later too, she practiced less than 50% of her time, so they actually contested whether she was really able to make this determination. But her contention was that things were not done quickly enough that the patient should have been intubated in the emergency department because of this concept of foreseeability. They alleged that the emergency physician should have been able to foresee that this patient was going to crash and should have taken these emergent interventions more quickly, and that should have been done in the emergency department. Let's comment on that for just a second. Uh, first of all, I'm not sure I would have given this kid epinephrine IV and an epinephrine drip. I don't know what the literature is that defends epinephrine as a vasopressor. In fact, most of the literature talking about vasopressors is real bad. Mm -hmm. But I will say this. The number of kids who are not having an allergic attack that you give epinephrine to in your career is vanishingly small. I mean... Think back on the career. How many times have you actually given that drug? So they do have the right to say, sick kid, crashing, what are you going to do? And then the real question is, what does a kid like this need? Now, they had, this kid did not come in with anything that looked like meningitis. This kid had an abdominal catastrophe. Isn't that right, Mike? Well, here's what they found on the autopsy. They said uh, a pediatric pathologist did the autopsy and they decided that the patient died of heart failure, which was a combination of pre-existing narrowing of the left coronary artery and a viral infection that had spread to the heart. So obviously this was not what they had decided initially at the time, which then brings in another interesting part about this lawsuit, which is that the provider that saw the patient initially managed the patient based on the symptoms and what their most likely diagnosis was for the patient, and it turned out to be something else. Yeah, no, that's, I, I mean, when the, when the patient is crashing, how do you know? I, again, the number of us who see kids with a um, hypoplastic heart or some, some problem like this is vanishingly small. Uh, so and any of the treatments they give, if it's for shock, um, you know, if the pump isn't working right, it's not that they're vascularly depleted, the pump isn't working right, uh, it can all turn to stool on you. And I think it's, it's difficult to say that they did something wrong here by providing fluids to the child. Well, you know, one of the things that we've talked about in the past is what a nasty diagnosis viral myocarditis is in kids, how, how it can really sneak up on you. And um, the clues can be very, very subtle. 
yes, a child comes in and has disproportionate tachycardia. They may be uh, shorter breath a little bit. You know, you may not have noticed it. You're not ready for this diagnosis. You're looking at more traditional kinds of things. The kid had an earache uh, a week ago. Maybe he's got some bugs in his blood now kind of thing. And, you know, it's one, it's one thing to know whether this diagnosis or this outcome was, in fact, um, preventable. Because we hear cases of kids who go home and die. This is a kids who go home and die diagnosis. And in this case, he died in the, in the hospital. I guess, he, you know, being a Monday morning quarterback, you could say, well, the treatment was not exactly that for myocarditis, but the treatment for myocarditis is, is really supportive. Yeah, I was going to say, if you have the treatment for myocarditis, please let the rest of the medical world know, because as, as I've looked at those cases, um, you know, a, a quarter live, uh, three quarters die or, or do badly. And the bottom line is, we're not sure exactly why some of them get better and some of them don't. I mean, there is no bottle I can go to on the shelf that says viral myocarditis treatment. Uh, and I hope this expert, somebody pinned this expert down to say, oh, exactly what is the literature on that? Uh, how would you know that this, where's the data that says if there's something else had been done, this child would have done better? Now, you know, I don't know the qualifications of the expert witness in this case, but I hope they didn't opine the fact that, oh, these kids do fine if treated aggressively, because that's not the case. I've seen plenty of them die. I think that's one interesting sideline of this case, not related to the legal aspect of it, but just something extra to keep in our differential. I mean, it's all those things, you know, with fever, like the hard to find stuff, like the bacterial endocarditis, the osteomyelitis, all of those hard to find etiologies of fever when the initial evaluation is negative. In the same way, not for this case, but in general, unexplained tachycardia, maybe chest pain, keeping that in the differential diagnosis is just really important. You're not going to see that many of them, but you'll never diagnose it unless you suspect it. Right, exactly. So let me go through, and we have five discussion points on this case, and I think all of us would agree, I mean, <laughs> I don't know, getting the kid up to the ICU in an hour and a half after starting him on vasopressors, giving him fluids, I'm sure they gave him antibiotics, et cetera, I mean, that's like uh, light speed for, for most emergency departments. So it, to me, it seems really hard to fault that emergency physician. However, this plaintiff attorney did, and they actually had a, uh, you know, allegation against them. So let's first talk about the discussion point about care being appropriate, as, which it was in this case, and the timeliness of care. Because certainly you can have a situation where you win the battle but lose the war. That timeliness of care is so important in emergency medicine. Greg, what is your thought as far as cases that you've seen where the care was correct but it wasn't done quickly enough? Well, I, you know, that, that's always alleged. If they got them upstairs in 30 seconds, they would have gotten somebody to testify the standard of care is 29 seconds to the right. ICU. <laughs> As if, see, here's the joke. We assume that the ICU actually has something different to make you better than we have sitting around the emergency department. But in general, you will hear that complaint all the time that it could have been done faster and the only, the only comeback to that is those of us who have done it for 40 years and say, you know what, being in an emergency department with a crashing kid for an hour and a half is not unusual. 
This is a usual and customary time frame. It's not like they weren't doing something with the kid or they weren't waiting to transfer them to the floor. This kid was sick, was being attended, was getting big-time medication. You know what? I, I, I think that we can only be so fast. And at a certain point in time, that's ridiculous. Well, this first point sort of feeds into the second one is it's not only us knowing that we did what was correct, but convincing someone else, maybe a plaintiff attorney so the case never even would be started, or or a jury if it ever made it to that point. So how is the best way to document in the chart when there maybe is some delay, or if there isn't a delay, just to say that we've done everything as quickly as possible, uh, any, any, any pearls or tips for how to put that in the chart and, and something anticipate if something bad would happen later? Well, I think, uh, I think Rick would agree with this, that the worse the patient, the more the documentation, which is being able to look at that nursing sheet saying, here's the blood pressures every five minutes. Here's the fluid going in. Here's the improvement. And this kid did improve with the fluid. And that should be pointed out. That, right, he that, improved and started talking. Uh, I'm not sure if he wasn't initially, but they yeah. said to the point that after the fluids were given, he was conversational. So yeah. putting that in there is really important. This is a, this is a kid who's, this isn't a six-month-old. This is a five-year-old. You know, they can, they can program my VCR better than I can. <laughs> uh, th- this, this is, as Rick might say, a little adult in many ways. And, and uh, it's, it's not that they were sitting around, and I'm sure the parents would testify that they weren't sitting around. They were doing things. Although uh, you have to acknowledge that, um, and Mike's going to get into this, there's one particular um, procedure that's going to be challenged in terms of when this should have been done. And there's going to be experts on both sides uh, uh, discussing uh, a very important point because when you think of myocarditis, you don't necessarily think of people who need fluids. <laughs> the problem is right. th- they can't handle what they have. And if you were to take an X-ray, you might see some failure. You might see an, an enlarged heart. So you know, giving fluids and and a quote uh, response may not. They may be red herrings. And so the issue will be what other things could have been done or should have been done uh, in a more timely manner. So, Mike, that's, that's where I think you're headed. Right, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I want to make one other point on Greg's is that as far as that extra documentation, one of the things that I find really important to specifically document that I don't see that commonly when I review different charts for uh, the medical legal stuff that I do, not, not as much as yours, Greg, or you're even close, but also for the, the peer review stuff that we do at our hospital, is actually a description of how the patient looks, not just, yeah, they're non-toxic, but I want to see some specific things that they're doing. So whether it's the right lower quadrant pain patient that you have stand up and do jumping jacks or touch your hand in the air three times, or, you know, <laughs> Greg always likes to talk about the kid that's, you know, running around pulling stuff out of the drawers, you know. Yes, yeah, stealing um, popsicles, right, yes. Right, exactly, <laughs> you know. But putting those specific things in the chart, I think can be really, really helpful. You know, here's what I spoke about with the kid, quote, he says something, he laughed, or, you know, he, he, he interacted in this sort of way. I think that's really important, in addition to putting in your note, epinephrine was started at this time, say, what did the kid look like? When it got started? What response do they have? 
those those are things that can be really hard to refute if this thing goes to trial. When you have a dictation, it makes it so much easier to do that and to paint the picture, the, the word picture of the child in front of you. When you don't have dictation, it really, really becomes a chore to do that. So I, I, we all remember, or at least m- many of us remember, when we had dictation in the emergency department in the more traditional way where go to India and come back like an hour later kind of thing. But um, <laughs> dictation is is so much better than, you know, the check boxes, drop downs kind of things in terms of painting these pictures. You know, I, it, it, let, let me take an aside here. The electronic medical record will come. It will get better. But if you talk to the people who I think have spent a lot of time on this, We are expert at taking individual scraps of information. The place where we have failed is when we don't include a dictation piece, the dragon piece, because there's nothing as useful as a doctor who knows their business giving you two paragraphs which summarize the situation. We all feel better with it. If you have to keep looking through these uh, 10 different drop-downs, to look for little bits and pieces to put together for a story. No, the chart, the electronic part of it is good for specific fact. They had their uh, MMR at such and such an age. Okay, but that's not the story. And in court, both sides, whether you like it or not, are telling an emotional story. If you can read from a great chart, you know what? You're halfway home in the defense. It doesn't take that long. I mean, we're talking just like you said, maybe a couple of sentences, maybe a couple of paragraphs. <laughs> but putting those couple of sentences in there that might take 20 seconds to do with a voice-activated product are just absolutely instrumental when it, when it comes to, to something later. And in fact, just last month, or actually in January, I, I gave a lecture to the Oregon College of Emergency Physicians, and the sort of interesting part about that <laughs> was that um, this was two weeks after the National Championship Football game that OSU, Ohio State, actually won. And when I got up to speak, I got booed. It was it was it was tough. It was yeah, tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way, if I'd been there, you know, uh, as a Big Ten guy, I would have applauded you. But then again, <laughs> yes. as a Michigan guy, you know, it would have been hard. You know, I would have for applauded. the Big Ten. You know, yeah, Michigan's yeah. in it. Man, I'm rooting for him. You know, that's yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that's right. No, I would have I would have applauded with one hand at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd appreciated that. Yeah, Oregon's been in the news also for some other reasons. Um, Dr. Kitzhaber. Uh, resigned, which is really, really unfortunate because uh, he was a clearly an articulate, uh, forward-thinking uh, physician who was um, leading that state for a long, long time, and it was really a shame the way he came down. Yeah, that was. I, I read about that, and I, I felt bad about that. The, the th- point I was going to make is that the speaker that followed me was an attorney, and he was an expert on EMRs and how they can use, either for defense or for plaintiff, the EMR. And one of the main points he made is that the EMR was never meant to be printed out. So you print this thing out, and it's really just different file cabinets of the nurse's notes, the radiology and lab test results, the physician notes, other things that are scanned in. But there's not one chart that gets printed out, so it's really hard when you've used an EMR to then look back later and see what what actually happened. It's a collection of bits, not a story. And the story still has to be told. So here was the story that this plaintiff expert witness told. It's Dr. Parker. 
and she testified, and I'm going to just going to read this. It's just about three sentences here. Dr. Parker testified that the hospital departed from the standard of care by not intubating Seth sooner, no later than 2.15 a.m., which is the time that he went up to the PICU, when his blood gla- when his blood gas levels indicated that he was suffering from severe acidosis. She explained that by the time Seth was actually intubated, after 2 a.m., he had already, quote, fallen off the cliff, and it was too late to save his life. She further testified that the hospital departed from the standard of care by not treating Seth within 30 minutes of his arrival, by not giving him IV fluids sooner, and by giving him the wrong IV fluids. What do you guys think? Well, it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback in these cases. Uh, From the notes that I've seen on it, I believe that the child was in both uh, metabolic and respiratory acidosis. And, um, yeah, I guess you can make a case that um, intubation maybe should have been done sooner. Whether it would have affected the outcome is a totally different matter, however. And I think that you could probably argue about this idea of giving fluids, right fluid or wrong fluid. It might have been no fluid, maybe uh, maybe uh, the uh, um, maybe operant in this case. So, uh, yeah, wait a second. You know, as we get into this, I hope there were plenty of people who said, hold on, the last thing we want to do is intubate a kid. If we can maintain reasonable blood gases without that, we're going to do it. Because intubating a five-year-old means we're going to have to put the kid to sleep or sedate them in some way. And there are plenty of people who say in shock, careful, 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 because anything we do to sedate that kid can make the shock worse. And, and so I don't think it's a simple question that, oh, yeah, you should have intubated him. That's like saying we should have taken his temperature. Intubation is a procedure which carries with it a certain set of risks. And, you know... These docs understood that, that this was part of the process here is deciding when the correct moment is. Listen, I followed plenty of asthma kids who the nurses thought should have been intubated. And you know what? That would have been the worst thing I could have done for some of those kids. Well, Greg, that's a really nice second to point three that I want to talk about here is we're talking a lot about the documentation. And again, I really think that this emergency physician did things about as good as anybody could have. I mean, getting this kid to pick you, being cared for by a pediatric intensivist within 90 minutes after having done all these different things in the emergency department and making what they thought was the correct diagnosis, I think was, was really well done. But what we're talking about here on Risk Management Monthly is the legal aspect. And so Obviously, even though they did what seems to me like a good job, they still had a legal action against them. So the, the next point that I wanted to bring up is, is one that you sort of segged into really nicely. How about the documentation documenting why things are not done? So not just what you do or how the kid looks, but a procedure which maybe it's questionable whether they should do that procedure or not, putting a documentation on there why I've chosen not to intubate or not to start pressors or not to start certain types of antibiotics. How about that type of thing? Well, obviously, it's, in retrospect, it, it would have been very, very helpful to defend the behavior of this physician. And it, you make a really good point because these are major decisions, and they're not done lightly. Starting an IV, nobody, no, no big decision. Starting an intubation process is a big decision. And if you can say that I've thought of it, I know that some people would consider it in this case. However, you know, it would go a long, long, long way to 
defending you as not being, uh, you know, guilty of malpractice? The basic tenets of the society are physicians act. The toughest thing for any doctor to do in a crisis situation is nothing. And it may be the exact correct thing to do. Uh, it's like whenever a doctor shows up at the scene of an accident. The truth of the matter is the EMTs are actually better at managing that case. St you know, forget it. Leave most of it alone unless there's something flagrantly wrong being done. Sometimes doing nothing takes more courage than jumping in. As Jerry Hoffman would say, don't do, don't just do something. Stand there. Stand there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You know that, that's the secret of the the crash that you come across. And you know, an ER doctor without an ER nurse is nothing. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> There's not much we can do. You know, we can dial nine one one. Yeah. Um, I tell you, you know, the the fourth point here is uh, just how fast time can move in the emergency department. It seems like the first hour of your shift takes forever, and once that person comes to relieve you, you look up and, you know, you're already past the end of your shift and we have a little bit of overlap with our shifts too. So, um, you know, you're trying to wrap stuff up, man, that time goes so fast. You snap your fingers, an hour goes by. And I think that in this case, they did things very quickly, but it's pretty easy to see how a crashing patient, you walk out of the room and get distracted by questions, discharging the kid with a you know, sore throat and all these other type of things that happen. And I think just really focusing on the fact that you have a really sick, crashing, potentially fatal case in the emergency department and making sure you go back into the room to reassess. Don't just manage things from the computer. Make sure you're coordinating with the nurses so they know that things need to be done quickly. I think that's just a, something that could... could sometimes slip by the wayside. This is the proof that uh, there's no such thing as multitasking. Uh, anybody who believes that they're actually uh, dealing with multiple individual problems all at the same time, that's wrong. They always take one major issue at a time, and sometimes you have to tell people, look, I'm concentrating on this right now. I will get to that other problem. And I think that's a skill which emergency docs learn through the residency and in, certainly in the first 30 years of their practice. And I'm not sure we ever uh, get it right uh, all the time. Well, the fifth case, the fifth point that I wanted to make here um, sort of moves away a little bit from the actual specifics of the case. But in regards to an expert witness, um, you know, the the, the expert witness made this allegation that the patient has been intubated in the emergency department. I personally wouldn't have done it. I personally don't think that it was a good idea to do it. I think that some of the Amanda Rivers data about the intubation has been shown now not to be quite as important, especially in the patient who is talking, as those initial IV fluids and antibiotics. But, um, you know, you couldn't really say about this expert witness that she was totally 100% out of line and, you know, <laughs> lying on the stand about things. But where do we go with an expert witness who doesn't have great points, but they could be reasonable in some ways? Greg, I mean, you, you've had a lot of things to say about these crazy expert witnesses. <laughs> yeah, I nothing nice. with her, but yeah, it wasn't uh, totally out of hand that she says that. Well, I certainly have, have dealt with people who I thought had some points to make. There's no question about that. But what they don't necessarily carry, uh, carry forward or it's not brought out by the other side is doctors disagree on some of these issues. It's not like we're all come up 
out of the same cookie cutter and we all agree that, oh my God, uh, everybody ought to get TPA. It ought to be, TPA ought to be in the drinking water in the right. department. <laughs> See, I don't think those are the kind of things we worry about. The, the most effective lies are at least half true. And, and uh, you say, wouldn't you say, doctor, that some physicians would think that this patient should be intubated at this moment in time? And then you'd have to say, yes, there is a debate there. So they could have done this or they could have done that. This kind of questioning, the sharpest experts, plaintiff's experts, know where to give and, and where to say, you know, could have been either way. I would have done it this way for this reason. Yeah, there's a lot of gray, gray zone stuff in this case Absolutely. for sure. And uh, unfortunately, being a child, I think there's a lot of emotion that basically says ch children shouldn't die and therefore something must have gone wrong. But yeah. I think that, yeah, I think that good experts on either side of this could make the case you should have or you shouldn't have. I think uh, overall, the... Uh, the um, doctor who was in the emergency department should have uh, survived this uh, case and not not been proven guilty yeah couldn't couldn't agree more well what was the outcome well the outcome i think is still pending they actually uh did have an outcome which then went back for appeal and the decision and it's you know i was saying some of the the names i didn't try to use the whole name or, or the name of the hospital but um this is all just Stuff you can get off the internet, really, um, this appeals decision. But what they say in the end for the appeals decision is that, um, uh, that there were ground, re reasonable grounds for appeal of the case. And, and as far as I know, this case uh, will either be tried again or that, uh, that they'll come up with some sort of settlement. So I, I think the final outcome is still pending. So this is a well, 2007 case that, you, that is <laughs> well, still... You know, the average amount of time is four and a half years. It's like 40, you know, 52 months, whatever it is, something like that. So four and a half years. So it's really not that crazy. This appeals decision is 2012. So it's five years. And that's, so that's after the trial. And then the appeals went through. So it's pretty much in keeping with that timeline, which is crazy. It's a significant well, I, amount of time of this, this, this provider's career. I want to make sure that, that our listeners understand what happened in this case was it did go for the emergency physician, uh, and then it was appealed by the plaintiff, correct? Yes. Yes. So the jury did think they'd done a reasonable job. Now it goes to the appellate court. They remand the case back to the trial court saying, uh, here, here's, here's why it, it isn't right. And so they either, they either have a choice now. They can come up with an amount of money and get out of it or they can retry the case. And don't underestimate the strain on a physician and their family to retry mm. this case. Mike, can we move on to case number two? Because I think that this is a, a, a very interesting case. Well, case number two, I'm gonna preface this by saying we had a patient, this is the alcohol-based case, and I'll talk about it more in just a second, but preface it by saying that we had a patient just recently and it was a patient that was handed over to me who was inebriated. The physician had done a alcohol level, and the social worker said, I cannot assess the patient with this specific alcohol level until the level gets lower. Please draw another one. To which <laughs> I replied, <laughs> I would never have drawn the alcohol level in the first place 
And the guy is walking and talking, and he is doing jumping jacks and ready to leave. So if you don't talk to him now, you might not have an opportunity. <laughs> this is Kowalski versus the St. Francis Hospital and Health Centers. And this, is a New York, this, this is a New York case for our yes. listeners. Yes. June 26, 2013. Involves a patient with a very high blood alcohol level who on his accord, his own accord, left the hospital's emergency department where he had voluntarily sought detoxification. So this wasn't a guy that got brought in after a fight or a suicidal ideation type of thing. He came in for detox. After eloping from the hospital, the patient wandered onto a highway where he was, Greg? Smacked. You, you are so correct. He was struck by a car, causing him to become quadriplegic. He sued the emergency room physician and the hospital on the theory that he should not have been permitted to leave, arguing that intoxication limited his decision-making capacity to the point that for his own protection, his physicians had a duty to deny him the right to leave. Now, of course, we're all like uh, swerving our own cars when we're listening to this program here right now, <laughs> thinking like, of course, that's what we do all the time is we prevent him from leaving. He's the one that wants to leave, and now he's suing us because we didn't listen to him, which <laughs> is totally mad. Yeah, <laughs> but let, let, let's add one bit of science here. For those of you who draw a lot of blood alcohols, the blood alcohol is a legal concept, not a medical concept or a performance concept. We had to pick an arbitrary number on which we're going to prosecute you in court. But no one ever said that the 220-pound experienced drinker male at .08 is the same behavioral level as the 110-pound a college girl who the first time she's drunk, who doesn't have a decent set of, of alcohol dehydrogenase enzymes in her body, these people at, at 0.05 are smashed. And all of us are fam familiar with the Olympic-level drinkers, you know, yes. the guys who are in there at uh, two fours, two fives, and are perfectly fine. Yeah, we've asked uh, many, many, many times that physicians not draw blood alcohols um, and trying to defend it. One of the points is um, that the catabolism of alcohol is straight line. And so you can pretty much predict when a, what an alcohol level will be after uh, several t hours after an initial alcohol level is drawn. So there is this business about this patient was discharged with an estimated blood alcohol of X, which is you know above the legal limit or considered to be um, an unsafe level or something like that. So there's no sense in going down this path. This is a clinical decision based on their behavior, their speech, their, their ataxia, their lack of ataxia. That's really what matters. And, and by the way, there's no such thing as say above the legal limit. To do what? Are you, you realize <laughs> if drive it's above a car. the legal... Yeah, you drive a car because they use a different legal limit in most states to fly a plane. Uh, are you are you above the legal limit to walk? I sure as hell you're, hope you're not above the legal limit to have sex, or most of the people <laughs> in the country would not exist. Right. I mean, I, I, well, I'm only putting forward here the concept that what we're really looking for is the functional capabilities of the patient, and here's where I've seen people screwed. The patient had another drug on board. They'd also been taking uh, uh, Percodan or this or that. So their blood alcohol level may have been below 0.08. But their performance level was screwed up by the other drugs. 
Now, if you have a bad performance and a low alcohol level, does the patient have the right to demand to leave? The answer is no, they don't. It's how they're performing at any moment in time. And that's what the New York court said. Well, Greg, this is, speaks to what you say all the time is you know, documenting your own malpractice. It's like, why put something on the chart that's going to tie your hands later? And right. speaking to the issue of documentation, putting, again, what this guy can do, you know, not just that he can walk, but what specific actions he's doing. So here's the question that the court came up with. They framed for the court whether a physician's duty to his patient extends to prohibiting that patient from leaving the hospital. The plaintiff... Um, um, so they, they looked at two different, um, two different parts of that. The first was a common law permitting detention, but only under the very narrow circumstances where the patient faces truly imminent harm. So that's where they talked about justifiable, forcible restraint. And they talked about the extreme circumstances when you were able to do that. And the second possibility was when you can involuntarily detain someone is statutory. And they say here, quote, you can detain a person, quote, whose mental or physical functioning is substantially impaired as a result of alcohol. Um, and uh, um, they distinguish also between a patient who comes in voluntarily, a patient who's brought in by police. So, Greg, you probably know but more about this kind of thing than anybody because there is some gray area with this also. Well, there's you know, the force. Where, where do you re restrain this patient against their will? Well, if, if I think they constitute a danger to self or others by virtue of the intoxication, I will restrain. And I did it hundreds of times. Uh, do I worry about that? Nope, because we re-examine them at intervals and say now they're capable. Now we've gotten a family member. Now we've done all these things to secure the patient. By the way, when you talk about foreseeability... Uh, let's, let's take the patient who's come in with a huge heroin overdose and you've made the mistake <laughs> when he's still breathing of giving him too much Narcan. Right. So what does he do? He wakes up. The difference there is the foreseeable future is when that Narcan wears off in 10 minutes, he's going to be on his butt again. You see, you have a much better chance defending that because we know it's short-lived they're going to be in trouble again. I can go defend that case. I think it's interesting that, th that the court in this case really said if it would be, he, they didn't just say you should keep them. They say you will have committed an assault and a battery. You will have, you know, taken on yourself a major felony crime if you had restrained this patient if he was at the level that you documented. I think that's, I think that's interesting. Now, unfortunately, it frightens me because I want to have leeway on this. But uh, that's what the court said: that you would have been uh, you would have been negligent, and you would have committed a felony. Although this is a civil case now, and uh, that might be good, but somebody has to press the felony. And I think that we've said in the past, what jury would ever you know, say that the emergency physician acting in good faith who restrained the patient was doing the wrong thing, especially when you have an outcome like this. Yeah, no, I understand, Rick. But, but I think we should point out the fact that the courts in this case said, at least think about it. Do your documentation. Show some reason on this chart that you've got a right to restrain them.
And uh, again, as I've always said, if it was my brother, what would I do? You know, what, what, what do I think is necessary at this moment in time? And uh, that's what this case is about. There was a case at Harbor General where they uh, had a patient leave uh, who apparently was not competent, and he was uh, killed by a car, and they, they lost that one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Uh, but it's whether they're competent. Now, I believe in Kowalski, it was the, the, the feeling of the appellate court that this person, they had documented a reasonable examination that this person could carry on conversation, understood what they wanted, had no neurologic deficits. Isn't that the basis of this case, Mike? Well, I, I, I think that, um, I, I don't know the actual, uh, or actually they do say, um, he unquestionably had a high blood alcohol level, but he was control of his faculties. Um, and so they didn't talk, at least what I found on here, <laughs> control of your faculties can mean a lot of things, a lot of different people. You know, some people might think I'm in control of my faculties, you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> well, he wasn't control enough to avoid the car. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, Ricky and I were having dinner the other night in a wonderful place in Maui, and I'm willing to bet that we may have had elevated blood alcohol levels. It could have happened. But we had reasonable control of our faculties. Well, actually, I was one of Rick's faculty. So I would say Rick had reasonable control of his faculty at that moment in time. Yes, actually, that was a, a, a fun dinner. And, Greg, uh, it was good because nobody had, you know, was incontinent or anything like that. And, we, right. you know, we didn't embarrass anybody. Well, you don't, you don't have to tell me twice, Rick. Yeah. Well, let me read you what the court actually says. Quote, there can be no duty to do that which the law forbids, and therefore the defendants had no duty to prevent the plaintiff from leaving the hospital. Accordingly, the health care provider defendants were awarded summary judgment, and the case was dismissed. Wow. So, so I think what this really speaks to is um, the fact that it went this far. Maybe, again, that could have been avoided with some documentation of the specifics of how this person was acting, as well as making sure that you put on your note and I know this guy eloped, but some people don't, putting on your note that you've discussed this maybe in front of another person, all those things that, that are so important to document with against medical advice. So you talked about the heroin overdose. I had two of these in the last week. One was a um, young man. It was one of the, my boyfriend's not breathing in the car kind of things, rushing out <laughs> to the double base squad doors. You as know, always, yeah. As, as always, um, who came in, and I cared for this patient. Uh, basically, we bagged him and gave him some Narcan, and we didn't, I, I didn't do any labs or x-rays or any testing at all. He woke right up and he was talking. He wanted to leave right away. As all these They people, all do. And what I did is sort of the, the, uh, <laughs> the hedge, I'm really busy. I'll be right back with you. Hey, let's work together. I ended up keeping him there for about two hours, which maybe wasn't quite long enough. But at that point, man, this guy was bursting at the seams. He was ready to run. And so I ended up discharging him at that point. His girlfriend was going to be with him. I actually gave him a prescription for the Narcan injector. Now, I know it's real expensive. I'm not sure whether they had it filled or not. But, um, you know, that was as long as I was really going to be able to keep yeah. that guy because he wanted to leave in 10 minutes. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> don't, don't get me going on the Narcan injector because yes. for $2.15, yeah. I looked at this. That's what we buy the vials for of Narcan for the emergency department. We can give them a syringe and a needle 
Uh, and this damn thing costs like what, Rick? Six hundred and some bucks. That's yeah, insane. I think that I think that that is the neighborhood, and um, I didn't I didn't know that these things were as expensive as they were. There's a, I have one right here on my desk, and you open it, and there's a, <laughs> a woman telling you how to inject yourself, kind of thing. Um, the uh, I, and I well, think if it was this... a woman telling you go go screw yourself, it could be my wife. But uh, <laughs> but and. I, yeah. and and actually, I found out that the injectors for epinephrine were also like you know four or five hundred dollars, which is They're, extraordinary. It's a fortune, and 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 when we think about this, particularly with heroin, let's see: is the average heroin addict like independently wealthy? They can have three or four of these things around. They don't, and the best thing they can do is teach their friends. Here's the vial. This is how you open it. Shoot me under the tongue or wherever you want to put it. And I'll get better because then you've spent three bucks or four bucks. I don't think most of them have the 600 bucks to go out and buy it. I just don't think they do. Well, you know, the other thing is about this case is I guess it means that you, if you work in New York, need to know the law and um, weigh the law in terms of your clinical judgment and be aware of it. Because this is a very unusual law because basically it said unless this person is in imminent danger of you know killing himself or something like that you the, the threshold that they set was really um surprisingly unreasonable yeah. yeah no it really was and 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 doc's got to be given more leeway on this issue we you know, are going to hold down a few people who are close calls but I'll tell you what, it takes a lot of balls to take somebody who had a high blood alcohol level and let them out the door because look what happened. We all have a case where they're hit by a car, they fall off a bridge, uh, <laughs> they do something else, and it just, we all have those cases. Yeah. Well, I think the message should not be to let everybody go with a high alcohol level. I think the message is really you need to assess it clinically, just like Rick was saying. It's a clinical diagnosis of intoxication or inability to make a decision, understand what's in your best judgment. It's not based on just a number that's on the on the lab sheet. Yeah, and and, but, and, this, and this law in the state of New York, honestly, it would not change. I would I would say, okay, fine, you know, prosecute me for assault and battery, but no jury is going to kind of. Um, say I, I did the the wrong thing when it comes to a civil suit rather than a criminal. As I always say in these cases is, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, uh, if you're going to find me guilty of anything, it's of loving too much. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> Can we move on to case three? Absolutely. Absolutely. So case three, again, is sort of staying with our topic of anticipating something bad that can happen. And this is a case from the, the Pediatric Bounce Backs book that you spoke about earlier. And what I'd like to do is I'm just going to sort of begin with a brief summary of the patient's story with this case, and then I'll talk about what actually happened in the emergency department. But what really is going to come down to as far as the teaching point that I'd like to get across here is when there is a risk of something bad happening, when there is not a definitive diagnosis made, how far do we go in speaking with the family and how assured are we that there's reliability with that family that if something bad happens, that they will bring that patient back? So this is a patient story of Jordan. Jordan's a five-year-old boy, lives with a single mother, and he lives in South Carolina. 
His maternal grandmother is a custodian in New York. She has a fourth grade education. She came to visit one summer and she woke up and made the patient scrambled eggs. And about half an hour later, he started to vomit. So comes into the emergency room at 11.17 a.m. And per the history from the physician, three episodes of non-bilious, non-bloody emesis over two hours starting one half hour after eating eggs, cheese, toast, and orange juice. Vomiting is not associated with coughing, no diarrhea, no upper respiratory symptoms. He does not have a stomach ache. He urinated once, and he had not eaten any liquids since his symptoms began. No medications were given. On the exam, his vital sign shows respiratory rate possibly minimally increased. Heart rate is 135. He does have, on his abdominal exam, a well-healed midline scar. He had bowel sounds, mild diffuse discomfort with palpation, no rigidity rebound or guarding. They gave him Phenergan in the emergency department. And just before he was about to be discharged, it was documented that he had a, another episode of vomiting by the nurse. Uh, she cleaned it up in the room. The patient was discharged with the diagnosis of Greg. Oh, uh, gastroenteritis. <laughs> <laughs> and the physician did not have the pen with that hand on the end of it that you speak about so often. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Didn't slap him in the face. By the way, right, right. his, his uh, scar on the abdomen was from a previous appendectomy, correct? That, that is exactly right, from a previous appendectomy. And actually, think- it was an unusual scar because it was a midline scar, which um, I, I think maybe should have potentially, well, you know, being a Monday morning quarterback here, yeah. uh, it's, typic- it's not typical to have a midline scar for an appendectomy. Well, it depends on your age and what kind of procedure they're doing. I mean, you and I grew up with, with the uh, Rocky Davis sliding incision in the lower right quadrant. But uh, if there was any question as to what this kid had, you know, obviously he had it before the age of five. Um, I think some pediatric general surgeons do open with an incision they can go in either direction on should they find something else well, other than an appendix. I guess the point I was getting at is uh, a prominent scar in the midline is kind of more likely, I would think, to be associated with adhesions and, and the, the ultimate diagnosis here than the typical small right lower quadrant scar. But <clears throat> that's Monday morning quarterbacking for sure. Well, you know, this is that what you talked about, and that's exactly right. This is the one thing. I mean, the main thing with this case and the sea of gastroenteritis patients that we see, there were a few things that would have made us a little bit more concerned. One is the fact that he had vomiting but no diarrhea. The second is that he was not really exposed to anyone who had a viral illness. But the third thing, and probably the most important, is just what you said. He had a vertical abdominal incision, and uh, it was a little different than what you would typically see. And if this would have prompted the provider to look a little bit further or be a little bit more concerned, they might have had some other, other thoughts on this. So let me go through a couple of the things about this case um, that unfortunately contribute to, the, to what, what would turn out to be a poor outcome. Uh, the first is that the patient had a history, if we had looked at that a little bit further, of a ruptured appendix and a second surgery also for that which was really just several months previous. And um, uh, this was history that wasn't provided by the grandmother because, again, the patient came in <laughs> the patient came in with the grandmother and didn't come in with the mother who knew the patient's medical history. So just knowing that alone might have said, well, this patient is a little bit higher risk. And so because of that, uh, 
probably we need to look a little bit further. There wasn't really an attempt made to contact the patient's mother. Um, there wasn't really an attempt to look at the previous medical records. So both of those things probably would have made the physician a little bit more concerned, not even for necessarily any additional testing, but maybe to watch a kid a little bit longer. Um, as far as the exam, it was a pretty specific exam to the abdomen, but I like to think that if you have a patient with vomiting, I mean, you know, that should really be the, the most important part of your exam. And a reexamination of the abdomen is, is something that is always helpful with patients. And Steve Cluciello said a lot of times, and this patient didn't have labs, and that's fine, but a lot of times the most important value of labs in the emergency department is so you can then go back and reassess the patients when your results are back so yeah. you can see if there's progression of disease. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things in this case is that uh, you would not expect a person to have peritoneal signs because we've all seen lots and lots of uh, bowel obstructions and they basically don't have peritoneal signs, but they have some distension. There may be something a little different about the bowel sounds if we ever listen to them. But, you know, this I, you got to think this kid's belly was a little puffed up. And the fact is that the doctor did comment on uh, some diffuse something or other in his in his physical. Right. Well, the the the, um, the grandmother uh, left with the patient um, had discharge instructions for gastroenteritis and a prescription for Phenergan. So they left at one thirty in the afternoon. And as you remember, the patient's mother was at work. What happened is the patient went home and was uh, eventually, you know, put put to bed by the grandmother uh, at about eight thirty in the evening. Uh, the mother came home several hours later, and when she went to check on the patient found that he had some green vomit on the pillow, he was unarousable, she called 911. When they got there, they found a five-year-old boy with what they quoted was a weak pulse and a tight abdomen. They placed him on a stretcher, brought him to the emergency department, put an interosseous line, gave him IV fluids, and en route to the hospital, he lost his pulse, stopped breathing, chest compressions were started, and those were continued to the emergency department. He was in PEA, was intubated, ALS medications were given, and several hours later, after really heroic efforts to bring this child back, the resuscitation efforts were discontinued and he was pronounced dead. Um, as a sideline, his mother was beside her, her gran the grandmother was beside herself and had to be admitted to the hospital for chest pain. But the autopsy that was done two days later showed just what you said, Rick, intraabdominal adhesions causing a small bowel obstruction, small bowel perforation, peritonitis, and... Um, uh, basically a diagnosis of severe septic shock, multi-system organ failure based on a perforation. This is a tragedy. I mean, yes. five-year-old dead kids uh, are never a good thing. I, I, can't I can't remember a case that I did where it was, you know, this isn't grandma who's 98 who is on a slippery bar of soap. This is a five-year-old kid. And so everything is going to be called into question. Uh, about about this case. Uh, it's never a good day when they say, remember the five-year-old you saw yesterday. It's not a good way to start the discussion. There's a couple of good points that in this case, uh, Mike, that you may want to uh, elaborate on. We have about uh, eight minutes left. So one of the, one of the points, and, and again, keeping with the theme of this episode of Risk Management Monthly, is again that issue, and they didn't bring it up legally, the foreseeability issue, but that thought when this patient was discharged, and again, I'm not throwing stones at this initial provider, but 
thinking back on it or to patients that we're going to see, you know, along the course of our careers, what could we have done a little bit differently? Maybe even if you didn't recognize the abdominal scar, what could we have done or spoken about or documented conversation with the caregiver as far as making sure they understood when to return? And, you know, I have to say that it'd be hard to dispute the fact that there was some diagnostic uncertainty on behalf of the provider. I mean, just having vomiting in the diagnosing gastroenteritis in a patient who had just had surgery several months before for a ruptured appendix, you know, that that's just a tough diagnosis to be so definitive on, maybe because it was so definitively diagnosed with aftercare instructions for gastroenteritis, maybe it made this grandmother less likely to come back. There are three mistakes you could make here. The first one is too many discharge instructions. It Mm. ought to be real simple. If the kid isn't normal in six hours, bring him back. Don't list 10 different things because first of all, if you list 10 things, they'll remember none of them. Number two, we get into too many medical ease sorts of things. They're either better or they aren't. Kid not better, six hours, bring him back, no charge, happy to feel his belly. And you know what happens? 95% of the kids don't come back. Why? Because they're better. And if any kid does come back, then they genuinely deserve to see that. Uh, Number two, don't give them anything strong for pain. If they're going to get better, fine. If If they've got increasing pain, Bring them back and let us take a look at them. Because you're right, diagnostic uncertainty doesn't go well here. And the third thing is assessing the social situation. Is this grandmother in control of this area? You know, I'm a conservative. I admit almost nobody. But I honestly believe there are genuine reasons for admission of kids if you think the home situation will not allow for that re-exam in 6 to 12 hours. Well, putting that discussion on the chart, I think it'd be really important about why you think the grandmother is or isn't reliable for follow-up. And I think that would have gone a long way towards not only explaining to her that there's some diagnostic uncertainty come back for these things, but also when things eventually happen, because what happened with this case is that it did go to legal action and was settled. So unfortunately, the provider who um, maybe could have done a better job with some things... um, we don't know what conversation that they had with the grandmother, but it would be nice to have seen that on the chart. The other thing I thought in this case was it sounded like this kid was given the Fenergan and short, and discharged shortly thereafter uh, without really any assessment of whether it worked. He had vomited just previously. And so it was. I, I got the sense it was um, Fenergan and go home. And I think that that is probably... Uh, um, well, clearly in this case was an imprudent thing to do. So I think we've gotten our three cases in the, in the, within the time allotted. Um, Mike, do you want to summarize any of these things in terms of the core issues that we're discussing? The, the main things that I'm taking away from, from today is, one, that documentation that you want to actually put how a patient looks. And it doesn't have to be a patient that's inebriated or a child or a patient who's crashing. Uh, but any of those, putting there specifically not only what you're doing but how the patient looks, I think is important. Second point to make is sometimes documenting why you're not doing interventions. And this is a pretty rare thing that will have to be done, that, that we'd want to do it. But I think that that can be helpful. So why I'm not admitting to the ICU, why I'm not intubating the patient, 
you know, why I'm not observing the patient longer. And sometimes even doing that would force you to say, when you're making that medical decision-making note, eh, you know, maybe I should be watching them longer or maybe I should be doing something else. And then the, the, the most important thing, I think, with a patient like this is to say, you know, I'm not present. I, I don't know everything that's going to happen with every patient. I know of every hundred or every thousand patients I see, despite my best effort at making a diagnosis, something really unusual is going to be going on. So making sure that the family understands exactly when they need to return, I think, and then putting that on the chart, I think is so important if this thing does come to a legal action because of an adverse outcome. One of the things that you see is um, the desire to move patients quickly through the department. And there are some patients that could easily be moved quickly. I, I get the sprained ankle. I get the laceration. We don't need to observe them, sit on them. We fix it, diagnose it, and now they go. But they're, mm. but but children who are vomiting or you're not really sure what's going on, I'd give I'd give them time. Uh, time is probably the most important thing in these cases, and we're not giving them the bums rush out the door because we want to keep our average times down for the department. Um, I think this kid probably was not um, assessed very well after the initial treatment was given. But that, again, more Monday morning quarterbacking. Yep. Greg, you have any thoughts before we do the wine of the month? No, nah, I'm going to do wine of the month. And uh, of course, we were just on a trip. People comment about risk management monthly. I had at least four people. People comment to me on wine of the month. Nobody talked about anything we said yeah, this medically. Is this is great. The <laughs> yeah, this is all they're interested in is your wine picks. Yeah. And, well, no. All they're interested in is criticizing my wine picks. They said, Greg, for six months you've been into the Californias. Uh, not all of us are Mel Herbert. We don't all want a $7 bottle of Yellowtail from Australia. And so they said, do a better wine. And so I've got one this month. Um, no, wait very, a minute. You said better. You don't mean better. You mean more expensive. More expensive. Well, uh, if Jerry Hoffman is, he is, has got to be the Bordeaux guy in emergency medicine, no question about it. But when it comes to Chateau Neuf du Pape, I, I think I'm pretty good in this. Say what? There's Chateau Neuf du Pape. Anyway, there's a Domaine La. Uh, th this is a wonderful wine, uh, Berrocher, Domaine La Berrocher. They've opened up the 2005s, tasted them, and the guy who, who does this, and they looked at dozens of uh, wines from this region, and he basically says, this is the best wine of this guy he's ever tested. He gave it 100%, and it's the, uh, again, Domaine La Baroche 2005 Chateau Neuf du Pape, P-U-R-E, P -U -R -E, and you can get it through Sorting Table, Napa, California. And the phone number is 707-603-1460. Get yourself a case. I'm putting two cases away. This is good stuff. Yeah, you haven't given us one thing about the price of this stuff. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to release that. Uh, <laughs> oh, come on now, Charlie. It's expensive. Okay, it's it's money. It's a little over a hundred bucks a bottle, oh, but God. it's very nice stuff. Now, Rick, I understand that you want a cold lager and and a and, and a cheesesteak. Uh, this or would be. Me, this would Mina's, be. You want the ham hocks. This would be wasted on me. 
I and, and and as so is most culture in America. So that's okay. We're all set with this. <laughs> Michael, thanks very much for putting these together for us. We always enjoy uh, what this when you do this. We always get good feedback when you're uh, a guest on the show, and so thank you, thank you, thank you, and great luck with um, the fifteenth edition of Bounce Backs. Thanks so much for having me. It's been awesome. Greg, good night. Goodbye. Bye bye. Oh, my God.